from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Dave Iverson. I'm not a bad guy. That short sentence opens a new collection of stories by Pulitzer Prize winner Juno Diaz. The voice is that of Junior, a young Dominican-American who screws up every relationship he's in by being chronically unfaithful and who keeps trying to patch up relationships even as he pursues other women. Junior never seems to quite get it, even as he longs for love. And yet, and yet, he's not a bad guy. Junior Saga is contained in Juno Diaz's new story collection called This Is How You Loser. We'll talk with Diaz about the book, about writing, and about what men don't seem to get after this. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Dave Iverson. Pulitzer Prize winner Juno Diaz has a new book out called This Is How You Lose Her, a collection of stories linked together by the character Junior, a young Dominican-American who's smart, streetwise, and supremely unfaithful. In one vivid observation after another, Junior eyes the women around him. Here's Junior describing a girl he's known since childhood. That slash of black hair had gone from something to pull on the bus to something to stroke in the dark. More often, though, Junior's eye is focused on other parts of the female anatomy. His view of women and his chronic unfaithfulness often make you wince. But the stories are so artful, so arresting, that you can't help but keep reading, wondering whether Junior will ever train that keen, roving eye on himself. Junior is a continuing character for Juno Diaz. He appeared in his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Brief, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao, and in his short story collection, Drown. Junior Diaz teaches creative writing at MIT, and he joins us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Dave. Pleasure to have you with us. In that first story about Junior, Junior, it begins with him saying, I'm not a bad guy. And you get a sense of that in that first story. And about his desire um, to make things work, it, it ends with the sentence, this can work. All we have to do is try as he tries to patch up this relationship to, which, to the person to whom he's been unfaithful. So is that sort of who he is, at least as the book begins, um, that he's this, this guy who's a, basically good, wants to fix things, just doesn't want to fix himself? Yeah, I, uh, I think he wants, you know, to fix things in the way that me and you would think, oh, uh, let me put this broken light bulb away and put a new one in. I think that at the beginning of the book, Junior's sense of the world is that when you betray someone, when you break someone's heart, it's no more than sort of spilled coffee. And that if we could just get over it and get back to the way things are, I mean, I find that Junior so disturbing at the beginning because here he is. He's really put a knife in the heart of the woman who clearly loves him, clearly has taken care of him. And he can't even imagine that this is something that might linger in her mind. And yet he's also not someone – it doesn't seem like he's someone who is just about sort of casual relationships. He's, he wants love. Right. Yeah. No, Junior is a deep contradiction. I mean, he's sort of a fascinating character because of his the way he circles around love. I mean, Junior, yes, is kind of incapable of sort of approaching intimacy for many complicated reasons. But he's also deeply committed to relationships with women, to being in conversations with women. You know, um, he's just so unaware of how much his life and his choices and his privilege have organized him in a way that makes him very dangerous to the women around him and the women who often fall for him. This brings me to something I really wanted to ask you. I was reading another interview of yours um, where it seems like you view Junior as being not an odd phenomenon and that indeed most men, in a sense, don't get it, um, that that – um, that, that the average guy thinks that, of course, he's pro-women, supportive of women because he's a good guy, um, but that that really isn't it and that no matter how progressive most men might like to think they are, that they really don't get it. 
I, th- I think that there's a built-in cultural aporia, that there's a sort of a stigmatism in the way that men view and imagine women. I think it's, it's generalized. I think that uh, most of us are not aware of how we have acquired a vision of women that doesn't really, you know, doesn't really encounter or doesn't really sort of think of them as completely, entirely as human beings. I mean, listen, I can't speak for anyone else, but when I honestly think about the way I was taught to think about women, it was completely instrumental. I grew up with this idea of women were either kind of a mom-type figure, someone who did stuff for you, or a figure of your sexual attention. And that doesn't leave much room in there for there to be more nuanced, more complicated, and more human relationships. Nor does it leave room for one to imagine women as something that is, uh, or as people that are utterly independent of our needs, wants, as they're not instruments. And is that what makes infidelity so easy, so possible? Well, certainly it doesn't hurt it, right? It doesn't. I mean, if you're, listen, if you don't think of a person as human as you, it's certainly easy to kind of put a foot in them. It's certainly easier for you to think that, well, you know, this can't hurt that much. It's They're only just a mule. Yeah, like you'll kick a mule the way you wouldn't kick yourself. And I often think that there's a, a, a fundamental lack of compassion that's connected to this sort of uh, underdeveloped imaginary that most men have around women. Because really, that's what we're talking about, right? If I can't imagine you as fully human, that gets me off the hook of having to be compassionate about anything that has to do with you. I imagine there are more than a few people kind of wincing when you make the reference to mule. Um, what, do, what do women come up to you and, and say about the way in which you describe relationships and that vision of women? But I think that, you know, there's a very, we must understand, it's such a diverse reaction to readers, by, from readers. Yeah. And it would be hard for me to kind of just universalize or characterize. But certainly there's a group of women who have seen this their whole life, who've lived under this kind of this umbrella their entire life and who are like, wow, we've known this. Feminist writers have been talking about this. This is nothing new. This is just some guy inside of the, you know, of the cell block saying, hey, man, this is what is going on here. So I think for most women, this is sort of, you know, standard operating procedure. I think that part of what happens is that we rarely have a conversation honestly Mm -hmm. across genders. And art is a good place to have these conversations. Art is a very, very good place for that. Was it hard to write Junior in this way? And he does evolve, and we'll come to this over over the course of the book. did you ever want to sort of correct him, you know, sooner, like like in chapter in in the in the second story, rather than sort of over time? Well, it really depends. What? Why are we looking at things that are problematic? I mean, I guess in my heart, a character like Junior, if I kind of tried to smooth him out and make him better. A, it's kind of dishonest to what I thought the vision of the story was of the book was, but B. My sense of it is I look at the world through my art in a sort of critical way. Why? Not because I'm like want to gloom people out. It's not like Gandalf who's always being called Stormcrow in the Lord of the Rings books. I think one looks at the world critically because if you don't look at the world critically, there's no possible way for us to make it better, to improve. So for me, I think I enjoyed having Junior be a terror because in some ways it illuminates so many areas that we could have improvements in. Juno Diaz is our guest, the Pulitzer Prize winning author. His new collection of stories is called This is How You Lose Her. I want to read um, part of one passage at the end of um, a story. Um, and this is Junior after he's been caught, um, <laughs> his girlfriend caught once again. Um, his girlfriend he doesn't is, always get caught, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so his, his girlfriend um, uh, has seen his diary in which he's detailed some of his exploits um, and, and is running at, at him as he comes up in the driveway. And, and this is what you write. Um, Instead of lowering your head and copping to it like a man, you pick up the journal as one might hold a baby's beshatted diaper. You glance at the offending passages, 
then you look at her and smile, a smile your dissembling face will remember until the day you die. Baby, you say, baby, this is part of my novel. Where does Junior go so wrong? Is it that he never saw that fully, full, a fuller vision of women? What was it about him that didn't allow him to um, not smile, that dissembling smile? It's a good question. I think it depends on what approach you take it from. I think part of what we're talking about when we're talking about a boy like you here is we're talking about something that exists beyond him. We're talking about male privilege. I mean, we're talking about that a boy can get away with messing around or a grown man can get away with sort of cheating on his wife and the culture doesn't come down on him, you know, like the entire line of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah, we saw that with the other day with that vampire actress. I don't remember what her name was, the one who was in those vampire movies where she was, you know, making out and messing around with this older director and everybody attacked her. You know, these two were both cheating or betraying their partners, but everybody went after her. Mm -hmm. And this guy got off scot-free, really. And so part of, I think, what happens with a guy like Junior is that there's just a lot of operational room for men to be up to all sorts of shenanigans. And the culture, some ways, not only sort of turns, you know, turns away from it, but secretly endorses it. I mean, come on, bro. If you are a dude and you're pulling a bunch of girls, other men are sitting around saying, you're the man. And so there's A, that for Junior, that there's a cultural baseline that says, this is a good idea. And then B, I mean, I would argue you'd have to take a look at the book and say, where are Junior's relationships? What are Junior's relationships around intimacy? What has Junior learned about being intimate? And I think the book makes very, very, very stark points about how and why and under what conditions Junior learns about love. What made you so, what makes you, rather, so fascinated by the subject of infidelity? Well, it's just a great way to sort of discuss a whole range of topics. I mean, it's a great way to discuss love. I guess I was always a believer that I, as a kid, I was growing up, you know, my my father was in the United States and my mother and the rest of us were in the Dominican Republic. And our story as young kids was that what was holding this family together was my father and my mother's love, that we were separated by an ocean, by nations, by language. We And yet this family was held together by love, that this was our home. Of course, this was our childhood imaginations, and later it didn't turn out to be that at all. But clearly love was something that was very important to us early on. It was the thing that was going to bring us all together. And I think that for me, what's most interesting about love, where we see love more clearly, where we see what's at stake, where we see what it gives us, where we see the costs, is when love breaks down when love goes wrong. Mm. And, you know, there's all these reasons why love goes wrong. But what is more nightmarish than you taking out a knife and plunging a knife into your own love, which is basically what cheating is. And so there's a part of me that is interested in this abstract level. And then there's just the fact that, like, I grew up surrounded by boys, my father included, all the way on down, where infidelity was everyday behavior. And it was this kind of boy omerta. We all saw it happening and no one said anything. And I think as an artist, you're always attracted to those places where people aren't speaking, but where everything is happening. I want to ask you about one story in particular that was my favorite, actually, in the book called um, Otra Vida Otravez. And it's the one story that's written from the voice of a woman, from the point of view of a woman. Um, and it is the most, to me... It's the one where you get the sense of the price of infidelity, um, the, the greatest, because the character in the, the woman in that story gets a sense from reading the letters of her boyfriend's wife um, about, about the price that, that, that is being um, exacted. Yeah. You know, to make a very a kind of a nerdy point, which, you know, the writer, you end up hiding a bunch of stuff. But, but just to make a nerdy point... 
the woman writing the letters from the Dominican Republic is Junior's mother. That's Virta. And the man that Yasmin is messing around with, who she thinks is going to leave him, is Junior's father. That's Ramon, which is, you know, why the story's in here and how it's all connected. In some ways, this is Junior, the writer, imagining hmm. the great hobgoblin of any threatened family, which is the other woman. Yeah. And so in my mind, though, I kind of wanted to sort of explore a Junior who has a very kind of, I would say, his, his a paucity of imagination around women and see as a writer what he can do. But B was also, I think, as you pointed out, very important to show what it means for one particular woman who has incredibly difficult life. She's an immigrant. She's in New Brunswick uh, in the middle of winter, working an incredibly hard job, cleaning the bloody sheets of hospitals. I mean, this is a place where love can most save. And yet what she ends up accepting is a very, very thin gruel. And her sense, as you pointed out, is that this love that she has with Ramon, who has a, a woman in another country, is, is, is very much an illusion. I want to come back and pursue this more, but you mentioned what she did. And to me, this is one of the more striking passages. Um, uh, and I'm wondering where it, it came from. When you describe this woman who has the, the boyfriend who's, who's married and she works in the hospital um, in the laundry, um, and, and she says, I never see the sick. They visit me through the stains and marks they leave on the sheets, the alphabet of the sick and dying. Sometimes the stains are rusty and old, and sometimes the blood smells sharp as rain. You'd think, given the blood we see, that there's a great war going on out in the world. Instead, just the one inside of bodies, the new girl says. It's such a vivid description. Where did, where did that come from? That came from having an older brother who had cancer and when I was young, starting at 12, and spending years hanging out at Beth Israel Hospital in Newark. It became my second home. Hmm. Um, my brother, his, his leukemia just never went away. And so he was constantly in treatment. And I would wander around the hospital. And I'll never forget, this was in the 80s before everything gets outsourced, you know, and everything's being sent outside. And I never forgot running into the place where all the linens and all the materials that would either be, you know, recycled or burned and running, walking in as a kid into this place and suddenly realizing there's an entire world in this hospital, which I have no awareness of. And seeing these women's faces and hearing them all speaking Spanish. And suddenly my mother upstairs, not able to speak to the doctor, needing me always to translate. And here I was downstairs with these women speaking Spanish. And there's suddenly a circuit finished, a circuit completed. And it stayed with me my entire life till I could get around to writing it. It's a beautiful um, and powerful passage. And that character is so powerful to imp maybe in part because um, you see the work that she does and also the work that they're trying to build in their relationship. Later in the story, they're out looking for a house and you have this sense of that they're really um, uh, working at it and that they're, and that they're going to take some risks in trusting each other. At the end of the story, she, she's going to give the husband um, uh, the letter from, from, from his wife. Yeah. I mean, the sad part of this, again, it's for like the, 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 the sort of super nerdy readers who, you know, follow me the way I kind of follow the Mets, which is maybe two of them. And one of them is probably my cousin. You know, they know that Junior's father leaves this woman and Junior's father comes back to the Dominican Republic. They know mm -hmm. that this this love is doomed. And so that's like kind of heartbreaking in a way, you know. Juno Diaz, the new book, This Is How You Lose Her. Um, he will be at a couple of um, speaking engagements over the next two days that we should m mention. He'll be speaking tonight at 7 o'clock at Copperfields. In, uh, that's in Montgomery Village in Santa Rosa. That's tonight at 7 o'clock. And tomorrow he'll be at Book Passage in Corte Madera at 4 o'clock. Juno Diaz at those two places. Um, 
you, there's a, a quote from Sandra Cisneros at the beginning of the book that I wanted to ask you about that I'd like to um, read. Um, it says, okay, we didn't work, and all memories, to tell you the truth, aren't good. But sometimes there were good times. Love was good. I loved your crooked sleep beside me and never dreamed afraid. There should be stars for great wars like ours. There's this sense, I guess, in that quote and maybe throughout these stories um, that it's always mixed um, and that there's always longing. There's a lot of longing, isn't there, in this in this book? Well, I think the Bible teaches us, you know, we have perfect dreams. We have sentiments that are pure, but our human selves are imperfect. Our human selves are cracked. Yeah, they always say, you know, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. But when we think about love, love itself is a very kind of, you know, it's an extreme form of sublimity. It's just a perfection. But we ourselves aren't always equal to it. I mean, to be love means just getting your crap together in ways that most (laughs) of us aren't able to. I mean, that's one of the one things why I've always thought, or at least since I was in college, that love is the great test of the human. The human is tested by our ability to withstand love. Love is so difficult. It is so challenging. It demands of us that we reckon with ourselves. It demands of us an honesty that few of us could sustain. Junior, my sort of crazy kooky narrator, protagonist, he has strong dreams of love. But he's so twisted and broken up and so unwilling to look into those broken spaces. But until we look into those broken spaces and make ourselves accountable and also open and invulnerable, love is going to be impossible. And I think that this is what, again, another theme and something else that I'm kind of really deeply attracted to. I want to ask you something about There's a line in the book jacket that I don't think is true. And it says, these stories remind us that passion always triumphs over experience. But if that were true, Junior wouldn't change, right? And he does. Certainly. No, I, I again, you know, I, I, <clears throat> I didn't write the jacket. <laughs> I didn't write it, man. You know? Yeah, no. I mean, one of the things that ends up happening to Junior is, as you described, that there is a journey to him from passion or stupidity to experience or what we could sort of pretentiously call wisdom. I mean, Junior, like, hey, hey, hey some of us learn quick. I know a lot of dudes who learn real quick. Yeah, I mean, one of the great models of my life was an ex-girlfriend's dad who met his wife when they were in high school. And his this childhood high school sweetheart, her parents died in a terrible accident. And he married her when he was of legal age, adopted all her younger siblings, and they have been together for 40 damn years. And this is like a great man. And I think that there's plenty of guys out there who've got their acts together as an artist, of course, you're interested in the ones who don't get their act together. And I kind of wanted Junior to have a long odyssey. He would not be an interesting character if he figured it out as fast as, say, you. <laughs> I wanted him to be a dumbass because then it makes for good writing. Juno Diaz, the book again, This Is How You Lose Here. He'll be at Copperfields, Montgomery Village in Santa Rosa tonight at 7 at Book Passage in Corte Madera tomorrow at 4 o'clock. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'd like to take your calls as well. What do you think about whether men can ever get it? You can join us at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. Back with more and Juno Diaz in just a moment. This is Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Dave Iverson. Our guest this hour, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Juno Diaz. His new book, This Is How You Lose Her. Again, he'll be at Copperfields in Santa Rosa tonight at 7 o'clock tomorrow at Book Passage in Corte Madera. Advice is to get there early. He has had quite the reaction at his readings uh, to date. And we welcome your calls at 866-733-6786. You can email us at forum at kqed.org, or you can post your thoughts about Juno Diaz and his writing on our Facebook page or on our website as well. Um, before I take our, our first calls, um, you said before, right before the break, that, that you wanted Junior to go on this long um, odyssey. And um, 
and at the end of of the story, um, you have him. He rereads again, sort of his his. He's you know again been found out, and again uh, and and but this time instead of sort of the dissembling smile, he 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 reads um, his he reads over his exploits again, and it concludes with the phrase that um, you know maybe his his girlfriend was right uh, to leave him. Where I'm just interested in. Did you know that it would end there? That that he would come to that point? Without a question, this book begins with this idea. Always, you know, I and I, I wrote uh, every notebook, at least fifty notebooks that it took to write this thing over the sixteen-year period. At the beginning of each notebook, I wrote the rise and fall of a cheater, hmm. and I always had this idea that this entire book would be about a guy who, despite himself, wants love desperately and just continuously scuttles it until finally he learns something. And I wanted it to end with this catastrophic fall because what happens when you betray the love of your life? I mean, it is an extraordinary thing. And I wanted him to do the one thing that I think most guys don't expect to do when they're running around, that they actually betray the most important person that they will ever meet. And he, you described it earlier as, you know, when you when you betray someone else, it's like piercing their heart. And Junior at the end um, describes his own feeling of depression as it's it's like someone flew a plane into your soul, like someone flew two planes into your soul. Yeah, certainly. I mean, anyone who's known that kind of heartbreak always describes it as apocalyptic. To our callers, Alexandra in San Francisco starts us out. Alexandra, go ahead. Hi. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking my call. So I have a question and, and some comments. And the first comment is we've seen you, – okay, you just said before the break that uh, you wanted this not to be a very quick learning process for Junior, which is why I extended the whole book. But we've seen Junior in all of your other books, so I'm really excited to see him back and see a full narrative of him and understanding who he is. Um, and then, I, and I had a question about your your commentary of of males, and I'm wondering if the infidelity is more so a commentary of of male culture in general, or if it's a commentary of Dominican male culture and how that translates when they come to the United States. Alexandra, thanks. You should tell your Denmark story. Yeah, well, no, but I think the wonderful questions. I mean, thank you, and also thank you for the com- uh, the the um, the kind comments. I just think I used local Dominican culture to make explicit comments about the larger realm of masculine privilege and sort of the larger realm of the male ideas towards women, you know, as some sort of, you know, women are some sort of like uh, victory badge that you gain. So certainly it's it starts with Santo Domingo and Dominican men, but I was hoping that people would abstract this out. I mean, I, we were talking earlier. I had to do an event a couple of months ago, and I went to Denmark, a country that is fantastically renowned for all sorts of gender equality, and like this is the closest we've come to a kind of feminist utopia. And I'll never forget, I sat down at a table with three single moms, young, single Danish moms, and they they have this wonderful state that takes care of everything. And they looked at me and I said, so how are the dudes here? And they, all of them unanimously said, Danish men are terrible. I would never date a Danish man as, as far as I could. And you suddenly realize whether it's a place with these astonishing privileges like Denmark or a place like the Dominican Republic where there's almost no resources and women have to deal with uh, a culture of femicide you realize that male privilege is something that crosses borders. Oh, yeah. Alexandra, you want to you want to chime in on your view on that? Well, I, I think that that's really that's I mean that's right on the money, <laughs> and um, it's really you, all of your books I've given to my boyfriend from Jamaica, and it's all kind of resonated with him, and he was really infidelous, and we've broken up, and I'm planning on sending him this book as a culmination of everything in the past. So. I'm really excited that you've you've identified it as such because it is a cross-cultural situation. It's not just for for men in the DR or a third world country, but it's, you know, in in all sorts of privilege as well. So thank you so much for responding and taking my call. Alexandra, thanks. Thanks. This this could be a whole new marketing strategy for you. Lord, no. Girlfriends can give it out. To uh, Megan next in San Francisco. Megan, go ahead. 
I'm so excited to be able to talk to you. I read um, Brief and Wondrous Life, actually, in a modern American novel class in college, <clears throat> and I think it really changed my perspective on the kind of future of American fiction. And I wanted to ask um, a little bit about comparing Junior in Brief and Wondrous Life, and particularly his descriptions of Oscar as a man, with this broader conversation about the role of men and tying it back to the theme of dictatorship um, in earlier novels and what you think about Oscar as a representation of men in comparison with Junior. Thank you. No, that's a really great question. Part of the reason I wrote The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde was because of the way these two characters circle each other. I mean, Oscar and Junior are fascinating. I mean, for me, they're not in this book by accident, and they don't circle each other by accident. I mean, listen, you know this as a reader, that Oscar longs for and lacks everything that Junior kind of has. Junior has this these social masks that he can put on. He has a certain kind of bravado. He's got a rap. He's got his swag when it comes to girls. Yeah. And Oscar kind of longs for that. He longs for his ability to pass for a traditional male that might attract women. Junior, on the other hand, looks at Oscar and longs for what Oscar has. And what Oscar has is that Oscar is always himself. Oscar is always vulnerable. He's always ready for love. It's always him you meet. Where Junior, you never meet Junior. Junior always has his mask on. And I've always said, you cannot be in love. You cannot make yourself vulnerable if you approach someone with a mask. Oscar never approaches with a mask. Junior always, and the two continuously circle in this book. And it is, for me, a conversation about certain kinds of masculinities. Megan, thanks. Thanks so much for your your call. Here's an observation that Olive uh, has posted on our website. Um, I know you can't speak uh, for all men, but what do men think of women that don't tolerate cheating? Do they think she was dispensable or do they have respect for her realizing that they made a mistake? It's a wonderful question. Uh, I think it really does depend on the sort of imaginary economy because, you know, there's people, again, I'll speak for my very narrow group of friends. I have friends who, when a girl is like, uh, no, I know you're married, beat it. The dude won't even register. It won't even be part of sort of the a learning, a sort of a moral or an ethical learning. On the other hand, other guys, and there are, who will get a rebuke like that and it shakes them a little bit because part of why this stuff works so well is because no one likes to talk about it. No one will actually call you out in such a hard way. So I think there's always a wide range. But let me tell you something. As a dude and in my small group of friends, the greatest impact to our behavior has always been women who are have a certain strength and a certain ethical authority and have rebuked guys and not only rebuked them, but actually said the words that they need to say, which is you are duplicitous and you are cowardly. Did you see women who took that stance growing up, Latin moms who took that stance? Of course. I mean, one of the things is that if you have a culture with a rabid form of masculinity, whether it's like the American South yeah, whether it's certain kind of American religious groups. If you have a culture with a rabid masculinity, the women to survive that culture have developed their own powerful, powerful forms of feminism. And without question, there's an entire vanguard of women, what I grew up with, who these gals were not cracking. These gals were ferocious. These gals understood that me chasing a guy who's married damages the community. Now, that's not everybody, clearly, or there's stuff that wouldn't be going on. But without question, there's always a group of people who it's not just because they're women or because they're men. They understand that sometimes our actions indirectly cripple other people's hearts. Why would we do that?
There's um, uh, there are lots of great descriptions of Junior's mom um, in in the book, um, and but but w- one of them is just how loyal she is, um, especially to the older brother. Um, you have a passage where you say, "If my brother came home and said he had exterminated half the world, my mom would say, "Well, there is an overpopulation problem." I mean, th- there's there's a lot of loyalty uh, among the moms in in your um, portrayal, but dads are much less. Visible. You you have one line where you say a dad is a hard thing to compass. Why isn't there more about about fathers? <sighs> yeah, I think because uh, I grew up in a world where there weren't that many fathers and they mm. weren't sticking around. And in fact, that the world that was so masculinized that you didn't even need a dad there to teach you how to be masculine. I mean, that's what. But the craziest part of it is that like. You don't even need the guys around for there to be this education and masculinity. But, you know, Junior's mother is also deeply problematic because Junior's mother may be loyal to Rafa, who's this beautiful psychopath. But she's certainly not very loyal to her younger son, Junior, who, not to ruin anything in the book, but who Rafa nearly cripples. And the mother sees him sees the fact that the brother has been nearly crippled by his older brother and doesn't rebuke, doesn't say anything. And so I think that certainly the mother herself doesn't exactly practice the most uh, ethical form of mothering. Back to our calls. Let's go next to Greg in Saratoga. Greg, go ahead. Uh, Thank you very much for taking my call. Um, I'm just so impressed with this whole interview. I wish it could be repeated again and again and again. Uh, and uh, your guest is just totally right on. As a man, I want to say I want to support him 100%. I'm nearly 75 years old. That's three-quarters of a century. I wasted most of my life because, on the one hand, I intuited. I just didn't get it as a man somehow that my problems with women were not always the fault of the women, that maybe they were the fault of mine and so forth. And then about 15 years ago, I read um, um, Robert Bly's book, um, uh, Iron John, and I, I started to get it. I said, uh, aha, I've never had a mentor. I've never been through a men's initiation. I don't ha- I've never had a rite of passage. When I was 18 years old, I ran away from home, so-called, and uh, uh, without telling my parents and joined the Marines because I wanted to be a man. Four years in the Marines, it didn't make me a man. And then uh, later on, nothing in my life made me a man until I started working with men in rites of passage, and this is so important. The, the whole world, every, <laughs> the men throughout the world need this. All Aboriginal people understood this, but we don't. We've forgotten it. Greg, thanks. Thanks for the call. No, I think it's, you know, I think it's so, it's so telling how Junior in the novel is so alone. He has no guidance. He has really no one to teach him anything about what it means to be a person. But what does he have is these very primitive secondhand, and I use primitive, you know, primitive secondhand masculinities, which he uh, in some ways adapts. And as you point out, without healthy forms, the these sort of toxic formulas end up eating boys' lives. And you can wake up and discover that you've spent 20 years trying to pass for a man instead of spending 20 years and just trying to feel yourself as a person. Diane in Rockland has our next question. Diane, go ahead. Uh, Yes. Well, my question is um, if you see any correlations between the discussion about marriage earlier and Hmm. the topic of the novel... um, from my perspective, I didn't hear anything in the discussion of marriage. And, you know, I'm talking about the American culture here. I've lived my entire life in Northern California. Uh, and that men are, weren't brought into it. Mm-hmm. It was like women need to be taught. And um, the fact in general, um, you know, it's kind of like uh, some of the culture. And obviously it's not every man, but some of the culture is like, that men have a life for living and women here to take care of everything. Diane, thanks. Thanks for the call and thanks for drawing the connection. The reference, um, Gina Diaz, is to our opening hour this morning focused on the connection between marriage and poverty (laughs) and some new studies and work out um, suggesting that there's a much, much greater incidence of of poverty in single-parent households than in married-parent households and some people advocating um, for the the benefit of of (laughs) marriage. How, I mean, within 
Junior's world within your world. How infrequent was that two-parent household? Well, yeah, I, I, first, I, I kind of the, the my interlocutor. It's, it's you know, you're dead on. How often there will be entire discussions about something like marriage and. Boys will be left completely out. Mm. It's really remarkable how one of the points of being a male is our privilege allows us to stand outside of a debate where our participation is absolutely essential. So that's one. Two, listen, really, I mean, I know this is important work and I understand that the numbers speak for itself. But I always think, gee, (laughs) in a way we're arguing these days for people should get married because we've given up the hope of the country giving people the sort of jobs that would allow them to survive with dignity. I mean, we wouldn't be going nuts around this whole marriage issue if our companies and our industries and what the, the Romney universe was actually providing people with working wages. Yeah. Diane, thanks. Thanks for the call. You you know, mentioning politics just for a moment, you had a piece in The New Yorker um, a couple of years ago expressing some of your disappointment um, with President Obama, though you supported him and would support him again. Um, and someone mentioned in our opening hour this morning, well, you know, President Obama was raised by a single mom. Um, so where are you um, with that and, and what, what the president represents in this particular aspect and the way in which, I guess, he demonstrates certain things in terms of his own life? Well, I mean, I think I, I heard that point earlier and I was amazed at how little we know that as a country, how so many people in this country are living in single parent homes. And yet the president has made nothing of it. He is so much more connected to the average American. He's seen what it means to kind of live in that sort of life. But we wouldn't know this. I, again, I am, I'm going to support the president. I'm going to vote for the president. I give the president money. But I still think, darn it, I wish he was a better storyteller. I think we would have a greater sense of how we're all in this together. Let me ask you something. Do you still have that longing um, that is so throughout this book? Do you still have that longing for love in your life? Of course. I mean, who doesn't? I guess maybe people do. I mean, I, I, I don't know of any condition that's universal. But again, I think perhaps it's just my early childhood. My sense always was that the only home that we have in the universe is in love, that the only home that we have is with each other, that the ultimate form of communion is when you expose yourself fully to another human being. I mean, it's sort of, I guess, when I think of what the human vocation is, I think of that. And I'm not sure that I'd be so interested in this difficult, painful world if it wasn't for that dream. I mean, this world is tough, bro. It's tough. If you don't have a dream of love, my God, I don't know how you get through it. Is that what you mean with that lovely sentence, the half-life of love is forever? Well, I also just think about how when we get older, we get a certain awareness. Maybe people get it young, but I didn't get it until I was in my 40s, that you can get over an ex, but never get over your love for them. And, you know, that that to me, I never thought that. I never realized that. I thought that when you got over a person, you no longer loved them. But... It's crazy the way when you really, truly love someone, how that is in some ways eternal. I want to ask you about one more passage in the book. This goes back to the story we talked about before that comes from the voice of a woman, um, Otrevita Otrevez. And she's asked at one point if she loves her boyfriend. Um, and, and her answer is, um, Anna Iris once asked me if I loved him. And I told her about the lights in my old home in the Capitol how they flickered and you never knew if they would go out or not. You put down your things and you waited and you couldn't do anything really until the lights decided. This, I told her, is how I feel. Is, I guess what I want to know is, is it, is it something then that is decided that the lights go on or do you have to sort of pull on the switch and make sure the lights stay on. What makes love so difficult, what makes it so scary and so challenging is that you can step up to the scratch line, you can step up ready to go, but the person who you're hoping that is going to engage with you in this communion is not ready to go. 
And I think that what we see with Yasmin in this story is that she's ready to go. She's ready to commit. And she's ready to enter into this sort of adventure in some ways, this kind of, you know, terrifying journey of love. But her partner, Junior's father, is not. His lights are still flickering. He still hasn't decided. Juno Diaz, his new book, This Is How You Lose Her, he'll be speaking tonight at Copperfields in Montgomery Village in Santa Rosa. That's tonight at 7, uh, at Book Passage in Corte Madera tomorrow at 4. As you know, this is a fundraising time on KQED Public Radio. To learn more about that, you can go to kqed.org. I'm Dave Iverson, and this is Forum. Let's take another call. Crystal in Berkeley joins us next. Crystal, go ahead. Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. My question is, um, I'm just wondering if at all during your writing, if you ever allowed yourself to face um, the challenge of the idea of what happened Crystal, um, Crystal, I'm sorry. We're having a really, really hard time um, um, getting your call. So why don't you try calling back, if you can call back on uh, on a different line. Um Here's some thoughts from our webpage while we wait for Crystal to give us a call back. Uh, Anne writes, um, I met the love of my life and was in a relationship with him for three years. I thought he was the perfect guy, unlike the ones you're describing. But he never had his life together. I always supported them, though, no matter what. what. He ended up having a crisis, leaving me. Uh, he also came back and said he'd made a mistake, but his words never matched his actions. How do you explain guys that are perfect for a time and then change? How can women recognize these women for who they are from the start? I think often the problem is that when we like people, we don't see them clearly. And I think often what happens when we fall in love is that we pull away from the resources that are most helpful to us, which is to say we tend not to listen too closely to our friends. Usually, if we have friends, and not all of us have really close friends, but usually if we have smart, close friends, all the information that we need about Mm. a partner Mm. is already for us and ready to go. But, you know, that's what's so hard, to have the discipline to listen to counter voices when you're in love. That's that's really, really hard. It's, It's probably one of the greatest tragedies of who we are is more often than not, we actually have all the information we need. We just don't want to recognize it. Because of the power of that of that longing, of wanting to believe, yes. despite all available evidence. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's terrifying. Linda uh, writes on our website, uh, women make men. My sister raised two very selfish boys. Their father was not involved for most of their lives. So women, sadly, are part of this story. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, and certainly you see this in Junior's mother. I mean, Junior's mother is, you know, a sort of a complicated, tough, flinty woman. But my God, how she enables the older brother. I mean, my God, how she turns the other eye, you know, she turns just a blind eye to the brother sneaking every kind of girl into the house. I mean, really? Do you really believe the mother doesn't know that the brother is sneaking a girl into the house every night? It's absurd. It's completely absurd. Amit writes in, I'm a New York, New Jersey native who actually went to Old Bridge High School, same as Juno Diaz. His writing has always resonated with me on a cultural level, even though I'm neither Dominican nor Latino American. Um, When you write, do you have a Dominican or Latino American reader in mind? So much of the writing contains what I'd call inside baseball with language and cultural references that few people outside that particular community would get on the first pass. No, it's a wonderful question. I think the one of the things that often one of the great secrets of writing that doesn't get talked about enough is that every single book is written with inside baseball, with inside information. Why? Because readers adore that sense of authority. They adore peeking into a world that they don't know about. The reason that, besides his incredible literary power, the reason that we continue to read Moby Dick is because Moby Dick is a book all about the inside baseball, you know, the inside knowledge of whaling and of a certain kind of culture. And so I know as a reader something that I think most of us forget as writers. As a reader, I know that my great pleasure is that I always feel when I'm reading a book that I'm eavesdropping on the most spectacular conversation. Rarely are any of us spoken to 100% in a book. 
Even a Dominican reader from my background who went to Old Bridge High School would feel that they're eavesdropping on a kid who was all into science fiction, all into apocalypse. Part of the great pleasure of reading is that no matter who we are, there's always something on a page that makes us feel like we are sneaking into someone else's life. So I don't mind that because as a reader, I know that that's a normal part of the experience. You mentioned before that um, this took 16 years coming back and forth to it, writing um, uh, the Oscar Wow in between. Does writing get any easier? You've written about how, how hard it sometimes can be and how painful and long the process is. Well, I mean, listen, all my peers produce, well, I should say all, but the peers that I have, they all produce like machines. I love them. They all produce a book predictably at X amount of years. It's always pretty darn fast. They're always going to be in here speaking to you. You won't see me for another decade, bro. <laughs> all right. So I always feel like I've got to fly the banner for the rest of us as artists or the rest of us folks who work on uh, in an area that we find incredibly difficult. I feel like I've got to be the guy in the corner saying, hey, listen, it's okay that you don't write as fast as X, Y, or Z, or it's okay that you're not like a machine, that there sometimes, sometimes our talents are in the long term, are longitudinal. And I guess for me, no, I don't think it's ever going to get any easier, but I am here to tell anyone out there who finds what they love incredibly difficult that that's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong. You've done nothing wrong. Sometimes what we love requires a very, very long-term effort. Juno Diaz, the book, This Is How You Lose Her. Again, he will be at Copperfields in Santa Rosa tonight at 7, Book Passage in Corte Madera tomorrow at 4. Thank you for being here today. Oh, bro, thanks for having me. Forum is produced by Judy Campbell and Irene Noguchi. Danny Bringer is our engineer. Dan Zoll, our senior editor. Raul Ramirez, our executive producer. I'm Dave Iverson. This is Forum on KQED. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation in honor of Louise and Claude Rosenberg and by the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.